Hi, and welcome to Deer IQ, where smart hunting begins. I'm Adam Lewis, 20 plus year educator, 30 plus year deer hunter, a tastefully seasoned outdoor writer, and I'm here to help you achieve what we all hope for, to be truly greater deer hunters. This is episode number two in our new series, Private Land, When You're King. Around 90% of white-tailed deer are taken on private land in the Midwest. But when you're boss, what are the pitfalls and how can you best rule your domain to be a better land manager, hunter in general, and have better chances at good deer? That's what we're digging into with our experts in this series and today in our second episode with guest Jared Van Hees of the Habitat Podcast. As we start, I want to challenge you to do a couple things. First, download our free journal to use with this podcast. That's really going to help. Second, as you do that, here are the top look-fors or things to look for during this episode. What are the top three things you should focus on to best improve and set up your land? What key factors should tell you exactly where you should put your food plots? What are key short and long-term solutions to improve your land and see results or get better deer? What are Jared's top two suggestions to take ownership of your land and make the biggest impact? And these could be land you lease or even have permission on or definitely own. And I have a few challenges as always at the end that I believe will truly take your honey skills up several notches. So make sure to stay and listen for that. And now let's get to the podcast and up your deer IQ. All right, I'm here with Jared Van Hees, and this is segment two uh, with him looking at private land hunting when you're king. Jared, welcome back. Thank you, Adam. Great to be back. So if you missed the last segment, you're going to want to go back and listen to that. We got in some general tactics about private land hunting, uh, general strategies and things to help you uh, when you're in control, right? And taking control so you can best set up your land for the best opportunities and really uh, taking advantage of that, right? Exactly. That's what I like so, to do. So that was segment one. If you didn't listen to that, go back and check that out. We're going to dig into some more details today looking at private land hunting and just as far as what you should be uh, trying to accomplish with your setups, right? And some specifics of that. Before we do, though, uh, Jared took the Deer IQ test, which every listener can take. It's on our website just to give you an idea of how deer smart you are. Now, it's not... It doesn't say a lot about you, uh, even if you score poorly on it, but it, it, it's just kind of a fun thing to take. So Jared took it earlier today and he got, drum roll, he got an 8 out of 10, which is pretty good. It's pretty good score. Um, these questions are kind of challenging. So that's the big reveal, Jared. 8 out of 10 there. Ooh. Thank you. That was a couple of those were some guesses, man. So yeah, I appreciate it. Leaves room for improvement, right? Yep, exactly. So getting back to, you know, uh, private land hunting here, um, I want to talk about what is your perfect setup that you're trying to create on private land. When you look at a piece of private and you have ownership of it or you have control of what's going on, you can make some changes, you can, you know, put in some food plots, you can do this, that, or the other. What is the perfect setup for private land, both, let's say, maybe on small acres and maybe large acres? What would Jared do? Okay, so 
can I assume that our goal would to to be going after you know three year old or older bucks? Sure, yeah, mature okay, bucks. Okay, because because mainly because we always ask that question. You know, if, if your goal is to just see deer, I might set it up a little differently than if it is to you know do what we like to do. So and that's a good yes. point. What right. So goal? it's always yeah. What's your goal? But but you know me and and my goal is you know in Michigan three and a half or older most of the time. Um, so the perfect property, small or large, uh, we'll start with would be give yourself daylight opportunities at the buck caliber that you're after. Um, that's that's it in a nutshell. Now there's a lot more that goes into it than that. So, you know, low pressure to where the deer feel comfortable or they're not going to be there or show up in daylight. Um, everything my neighbors have and more. So if you got a neighbor with a food plot, you better have two. If you have, you know, a water hole, you better have a better water hole or two water holes. Um, if you have, you know, if they have some, let's see, it used to be baiting even, like if you had a feeder, I don't like to hunt over that, but at the same time, if your neighbors all have them and you don't, you're kind of at a disadvantage. So if he's cutting his timber and you have big park-like settings, you gotta, you gotta adjust. So everything your neighbor has and more, low pressure, um, and then perfect bulletproof access. The access has to be to on either size. It doesn't matter to where um, you can get in and out without any issues. Um, those would be probably top three on either size property. Gotcha. So which of those, so you mentioned entry and exit, uh, setting up for daylight opportunities at mature box and keeping pressure low, um, which would have to do with entry and exit somewhat. Um, which of those are number one, like you first are going to look at? Yeah, um, it'd be the the pressure, which is entry and exit has a part right. to do with that. Daylight activities also has a part to do with that. Everything has a part to do with that. Um, if you are overpressuring your ground, you are setting yourself up for failure and you're not going to be able to hit the goals that you're looking for most likely you might get lucky during the rut, something chasing something through, but, um, to get bigger deer to hang around, you're going to need low pressure. Michigan. We're a little bit different. Our deer are a little bit crazy, right? Um, we have a lot of hunters in this state and, you know, we have a lower number of older deer as well. So you put those things together, um, pressure would be number one. So, can you think of an example of, let's say, a property and what that might look like, like making a bulletproof entry and exit? Uh, how do I do that? Or what, what would that look like on a property X or whatever? Great, great question. Um, it'd be, you know, it'll look different on every different parcel. But for, right. for instance, here's one that I did recently on my 15 acres. Um, I pull in, I pull just off the road and so my property is long and narrow and um i designed it with a chainsaw that the road and my whole southern line are all just a mess of trees hinge cut felled whatever going down and making a fence so 
the deer after a year or two can't see through that anymore. They can't walk through that anymore. Um, I am able to park my truck just off the road. I mean, I'm 10 yards out of my property at most. And then I slowly, you know, quietly shut the door. I sneak down the edge of my hinge cut area. And when it's about to open up a little bit, I'm up a tree right there. And I'm, I mean, I'm five yards off my property line from my neighbor. Um, I don't shoot out of my neighbors. I don't hunt on my neighbors. It's not the point. The point is to not go onto mine at all. If I can, my wind is blowing off that parcel, off my parcel into his, uh, the entire time or the way I walked in. Right. And that's, that's where I'm letting deer know where I am is that direction, which is to my truck, which is, they're not going there anyways. So that's an example of, of how I can do that. And then to get out can be a little tough because I got deer, you know, 60, 70 yards in front of me in that food plot way out there. Um, I'll either have to wait until they move off to the big ag fields. Um, some guys will use a coyote or predator call, which seems kind of counterintuitive because you're firing off a coyote call and trying to not pressure your deer. But I've heard it does work. Um, and you just got to slide back out of that tree and back to the truck and get the heck out of there. Um, you know, I don't, I don't drive in my tree stand. I don't slam doors. I don't hang around long after dark. I'm in and I'm out. Right. Yeah. And really being honest about your property and where you can do that, right? There's certain areas of a property, maybe you can't hunt or maybe you can hunt once a year because you know of your, the intrusive nature of it. Right. And just exactly right. doing your best to set those up. So you mentioned hinge cutting and making visual barriers so the deer can't see you using the right wind. So it, it's at least not blowing into your property. It's really at least not messing up your property. Um, wind's going to be blowing in some direction. Right. But um, let it blow off into the neighbors, right? Um, or exactly. where the deer you, won't be. Right. And you mentioned something there like not, not, not every one of my stands is that bulletproof. Um, I have stands that are further in that you're going to sacrifice a ground trail. You're going to sacrifice some wind. It's all about when you do that, you know, when the time is right, late October, early November, where you dive back in there, knowing you're going to sacrifice a little bit, but you've, You've got the property dialed in and your scouting dialed in to know that I'm going to sacrifice some, but I plan on killing a buck today. So, Right. I think a temptation, and it, it's very real, and I understand why, um, is, okay, I got this property now. Let's say I saved up money and bought this property, you know, like I think you just did, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I want to hunt it, right? But I think the temptation is to overhunt it, right? And it, you know, you, you educate deer in the process and instead of making these really strategic strikes when in reality I should be hunting maybe less and just being very strategic about this small number of times I do hunt, um, and keeping pressure super low. So, uh, what's your, what do you think about that? And, and what are your, when it, land management becomes also self-management, right? Discipline. Yep. Oh, that's, that's very real. That's probably a very common goal uh, or a uh, uh, common occurrence. Um, my first year I bought that parcel, I didn't hunt it until the 26th of October um, for the first sit. That was painful. That was painful. Right. And my buddies are like, what are you doing? You spent the money. You got the stand set up. Your food plots are green. Go get it. And I waited, I waited, I waited. Uh, first night. I passed a nice eight point right under my stand. 
Um, I hunted the next morning. I saw like two or three bucks that night. I hunted the next morning. It was slow. And then that next evening, I killed the 10 point. Uh, so three sits in to the property. And the only reason those deer felt so comfortable is because I wasn't there, in my opinion. Right. So that's, um, to your point, I, I understand. But it depends what your goals are. What do you want the property for? If you want it to go rip quads and dirt bikes, that's cool. You know, if you want it to kill bigger deer, that's cool too. It's, it, all, it all depends. And those two goals probably don't completely go together, right? Like, I, I don't. I don't think they do very well. Maybe maybe somebody can prove me wrong, and, and I'll yeah. give my hats off to them. But I, I usually probably not. So to your point there, yeah, I think a lot of guys that um, are really successful, uh, we'd say, are top hunters. You know, they yeah. are are these great hunters, right? They they are super self-disciplined. Like they only hunt when they know the odds are super high, right? So a lot of these guys, like you said, don't hunt until mid, late October because they know the odds are low. Um, maybe unless like that first few days, they, they just know where one is, right? But that is kind of counterintuitive to a lot of guys. But, um, and I've wrote about this before too, like the idea of the first sit, like a lot of guys understand that, that your odds are much higher the first time you hunt a spot, but you have to make your first sit the, the best time to go in there, right? Your first sit shouldn't be a low odds hunt, like in the middle of the October lull, unless you have some information to tell you, you should, right? Um, so a lot of, you know, the land thing is also a you thing, you know, imagining you and how you know, right? Talk about that real quick. Like, how do you know you've got this property? Um, you're itching to go in there, but you're you're restraining, right? You're, what tells you, what tells Jared that, hey, I'm going to go hunt this property now? Is it just the time of year? Like, what are some indicators that you would tell people, hey, uh, now's the time to hunt your private land? Great question. Um, a couple things I pay attention to weather a lot, weather, you know, you, you, you know, we we're on our phones watching the weather app daily in the fall, um, if not hourly. And I like, I like cold fronts, um, or the day after even, but I like sitting out in the nasty weather. I've seen some, some good deer and that stuff. So I like, you know, whether it's early October, which is not always as common, or that mid-October, maybe the 20th, somewhere in there, good cold front then can be dynamite. Um, and then every cold front after that, I'll be I'll be in. Or I like, um, I'm studying barometric pressure a little bit. I don't know a ton about that. Um, other people have proven that maybe it has nothing to do with things, but I don't know. I, I pay attention to it a little bit, but weather first, for sure. Um, and then cameras, intel. You know, you got these tools that you can have scout for you and hunt for you all the time. So that's what I try to go for by using a network of cameras. And then they just keep me posted and updated throughout when I need to see these daylight pictures, when I'm going to dive into the, to the woods. So a lot of the times that's a Northwest wind late October with already a daylight picture of a, a target buck. It's like, all right, I'm, Calling sick, whatever you got to do, get in that stand, you know, that sort of thing. I try to let everything come together because, you know, like you saw, I have three kids, you know, a couple jobs, the whole thing. It's like I got to be efficient with my time. And that's what that's what a lot of big buck killers do, even if that's the only thing they do and it's their only job. They're still not 
you know, burning properties by sitting every day on something most of the time. Right, right. You you have, I think it's good to have multiple oper- places to hunt, right? That, yep. that helps. Uh, but yeah, the, the reality is you have limited resources. Everybody does, right? So it's uh, being wise about when you jump in there. Um, and so, yeah, this idea you mentioned earlier, it's about daylight opportunities and being honest about when you can actually shoot something that you want to shoot, right? And so you can use trail cameras, but you also mentioned setting up your property to be conducive to low pressure and daylight opportunities. What does a property look like that's conducive to daylight movement? Yep. Hi, this is Adam Lewis with DeerIQ.com and this is your High IQ Moment. Since around 90% of all deer are taken on private land, according to a new NDA survey, this means that the most opportunity is probably on private land, both now and in the future. If you're considering buying land or leasing, here's a tip from our blog article, Get a Private Land Deer Hunting Hotspot. One not only must consider what is going on at the private property you're considering, but also the surrounding property and what it does to meet whitetail needs. Are the neighbors supporting QDM or just filling tags? Is there a sanctuary, big food source, or good cover that will enhance your abilities to hold deer on your prospective land? An absolute jackpot is finding a piece entirely surrounded by sanctuary, either no hunting private land or government owned property that allows deer the chance to grow big, old, and behave like normal deer that aren't pressured. Check out the full article on what to look for in private land linked below. And if you're getting something out of this podcast, consider sharing it with a friend who may benefit. And also maybe comment, like, or review depending on where you're listening. That helps the podcast grow and is greatly appreciated. Okay, and now back to the podcast. What does a property look like that's conducive to daylight movement? Um, cover, cover to me is, is as important as food, if not, if not more. So I would go, you know, that, that thing I referenced earlier about anything above six feet is pretty useless to a deer. I mean, yeah, oak trees drop acorns. I get that. Um, there are a couple exceptions, but if it's above six feet, I'd rather have it laying on the ground, side cover, you know, walls of cover, um, spots for deer to hide in bed, uh, sunlight hitting the ground because there's no big canopy up there. That is what I think is conducive to daylight opportunities in Michigan and other places for sure, but Michigan specifically. And I think that here's my where I really first realized that. I'd go up north hunting every year, Lewiston area. Um, before that, it was Hesperia. Um, now it's up in the tip of the, the mitt here or whenever I'm rifle hunting with my seven mag where I can shoot 300 yards, I could almost always use my bow instead. Like that's the sort of cover I'm in. And it took me a long time to hunt in those spots versus sitting in this grandiose, you know, view down the ridge. Um, I find myself in the swamps, muck boots on, up a tree with a rifle. I'm like, I could just use my bow in here at this point. Yeah. But that's where I'm seeing the deer. So that's where, uh, that's kind of what got me triggered on that probably 10 years ago. 
And now I've just, you know, over time I've learned that that's exactly what it is. Um, and the way I do that is usually with a chainsaw and make the property as thick and nasty as it can be. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. You know, that again, putting yourself in a deer's head, I think segment one, we talked about that and the needs of a deer, right? The biggest one uh, being safety, uh, security. safety, security, food, and then uh, reproduction, right? And so um, if they don't feel safe, they're not going to be on your property, right? But if they do, and especially, you know, playing off your neighbors, if you got pressure around you, uh, you want yours to be the safest place and let them come to your property, right? And, and give them no reason to want to leave. Uh, so, yeah, so you mentioned dropping some trees, uh, letting... Really letting, we haven't even talked about food plant, right? It's letting what's there actually just start growing uh, from the forest floor and creating that that high uh, stem count cover. Yeah, and I mean, to, I guess the next step, like last night I was out in the woods. Um, we're having some loggers coming up here. And I was out painting food plots to where they're going to take every tree within the circle that I painted. The location of those is extremely important it's it's about as far into the cover as i can get uh on this parcel um and so what in my brain i can see in the future what it's going to look like i'm going to have you know cut trees all around this thing building these huge walls of cover i'm right next to the swamp and i'm going to have sunlight hitting the, the forest floor all around the food plot shooting up new growth everywhere and this food plot is going to be secluded so back to the whole security cover, um, seclusion, low pressure, that's, that's number one. So food plots, I'm going to have some, but like you said, like the main thing is cover and to be in the thick stuff where the deer feel safe. Put your food plot there too, if you can. So you're utilizing the land in what's already there, let's say as a swamp or some sort of bedding cover <clears throat> they already utilize. And then getting a food pot as close as possible to that. So, it, you know, you make it super easy for them to come to an area that you can feasibly hunt, right? Correct. Um, yeah, so the way it lays out, way up top where we're at, the cabin and all that is, and then down the hill is all hard maple, big, big timber, sea long ways. They're going to cut a lot of that and thicken that up. I'm, I'm using that hillside now as bedding. They're already bedding on the hill. I know that. I found beds. And they're betting in the river bottom at the bottom, little creek bottom, for instance. Um, so right in between those two, the creek bottom and the hill coming down is where I'm going to have that plot. The, the biggest thing I'm going to have is getting in and out of it because it's, uh, it's where the deer need to be. It's not easy for where I need to get to. So I'm going to have some creative access pretty much down a cliffside into what's probably a box blind for scent purposes or a, or a blind. And I don't even like sitting in blinds. But to hunt that spot the correct way, that's what I have in my brain at this point so far. That's a good point, too, is just looking at the property and letting that kind of tell you what you need to do versus trying to force your will upon it, you know. Yep. Because of some preconceived notion you have or something you saw somewhere on TV or heard somewhere. Like, what does the property actually allow you to do the best and easiest to just take what's there maybe and just make it a little better and uh, allow you to hunt it at the same time right i mean and maybe it can be it is a tree stand and maybe it's a ground blind um like out back i have six and a half acres and i can hunt like let's say two and a half three of it a little honey you know, hole and 
I have houses all around me, but the nice thing is behind it, there's about, there's fields around, but there's about 40 acres of like non-hunted stuff pretty much. And, but the guy that owned it before me had this elevated blind he built and it's noisy getting up into it. You got this door with the seal on it. You got to open and I re- and there's no really good trees for a tree stand. Uh, and even though I would prefer that, I realized I just got to put a ground blind here. Uh, and with the, there's a bunch of goldenrod and brush and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that allows the visual barrier. I can just sneak in there and it hunts for a ground blind, you know. And uh, that's the reality, right? So really looking at what what is the best setup for your property and uh i guess augmenting that i guess right yeah so you chose to go the harder route set up a new blind versus take the one that was there um sit on the ground instead of be elevated that's also a little more challenging and then um you know i don't know how you got to that big blind that was there in the first place if you had to walk through the food plot or not but i know you're probably not doing that now so it's yeah there's just these little things that some guys might not think of that can really make or break the whole situation. Yeah, it's not um, it's not what's easiest for you. It's what's going to allow you to hunt undetected and hunt yes. multiple times, right? If you can only hunt one time, that's not much uh, good for anybody, right? I mean, you might get something, but that's really low odds. Exactly. And one of the main things that we always see is, you know, back to the first thing we covered is that food plot. Um, I got this open field. I'm going to put a food plot in right here. And then a lot of guys will sit there and, and do that. They'll walk through the food plot to get to the stand on the back of the property and back out that night when they leave. And um, it's so detrimental that it's just, and that's more the easy route, you know, okay, there's this open field here. It's given to me right, right here versus nope, put up walls of cover, put the food plot further back, you know, Sometimes the easy way isn't always the best way, right? Right. And there's also short-term things you can do, long-term, you know. Uh, talk me a little bit about, like, the short-term mentality um, and some things you can do short-term versus long-term uh, to get, I guess, to your goals. Yeah, that's a that's a great question uh, because habitat management and land stewardship is not even – it's a marathon, it's not a sprint, um, you know, getting your timber cut and having that regrowth, regrowth comes, come back, takes, takes years. Planting apple trees and getting them to drop and chestnut trees takes years. That's a lot of the long game mentality. Um, in today's world, we all have the short mentality, instant gratification. Uh, some of that stuff that you could do would be more your, your mock scrapes, your, your food plots, your water holes. You can put those in, in a summer, um, tree stand prep or saddle hunting locations. That'd be more your, your short-term stuff for sure. Yeah. And even some screening stuff like I've done on my property, like I planted trees. Okay. That's a long-term screening solution versus stuff like Egyptian wheat and sun hemp and some of that, that are annuals that you can do every year. Right. So setting goals for both of those. Um, I'm curious, Jared, so with your experience with this, and I, like I said, it's a journey for everybody, where you're at in your journey, um, related to private land hunting, land management, is there an experience you can share, maybe a story of 
uh, a fail, if you can admit that, a fail, and what did you learn from it? Oh, Adam, I have more fails than successes, buddy. Um, yeah, a, a one that I've talked about in, in the past is when I first bought that 15, I mowed down a bunch of my cover to put in a food plot day one. Uh, first day we got there, we mowed it down with a, a brush hog in the front of a skid steer. And I made these big, grandiose, wide open food plots. Um, I quickly learned the deer didn't like to travel through that area so much anymore. So I spent the next four years building cover back around it and making the food plot smaller and smaller and giving them more security on both sides uh, while they were through there. Um, another one would be trees. Trees can be tough. And when I say trees, I mean planting trees, soft mass trees. Um, now I would buy, I would save my money and buy the oldest trees I can and protect them and, and water them if I can and all that stuff. Back then, I bought as many as I could and put them in the ground and kind of hoped and prayed for uh, the best to, to make it through. And that and it worked. I mean, I only lost a few. But at the same time, you, if you're buying seedlings from your conservation district or really small stuff, uh, it's hard to be a tree sometimes when you're being planted out in a grass field. You're competing with all these grasses. Grasses are very prolific, uh, things like that. So those are a couple of things I learned right there at first. All right. Thanks for being honest there about some of that. And it is something where you can take a lot of advice from people. You can get education on a lot of stuff and that helps. Some of it's just, you know, you have to kind of learn through some experience and you're going to have some, some fails, right? You're trying to minimize them, but it's part of just living. Right. And so, um, you're going to learn that stuff. Uh, what would be a story of success where uh, you implemented this or that and you, you, you had maybe success on a, a good buck or whatever? I know you've taken some good bucks on your property. Uh, can you share a story with that and kind of guess what led up to that? Like what decisions and I did this with Habitat and I feel it produced this. Great, great question. Um, I would say... I mentioned the one where I waited till October 26th and the third sit connected on a deer. Um, the next buck I shot out there was in 2021. I got two that year on the 15th. The first one was October 19th. It was one of the earliest I've killed a, a good buck in Michigan. And what I did there, I had two or three years of trail cam data um, not cellular, just regular trail cam data of the first time bucks are daylighting on my property was, you know, that, that lull or right after that October lull. I noticed that for two years. I'm like, huh, I should probably hunt that sometime. The third year I'm like, holy crap, this happened again. I'm like, all right, this year on the calendar, January 1st, I'm like October 19th, I'm hunting that weekend. You know, the wife and three kids, the calendar is a big deal. Um, so I did that, and then I slid out there. I hunted Saturday evening and Sunday evening only at that time. And I heard and saw him right at dark, a good buck, right at dark in the food plot. It was, it was after legal light, and I was still in my tree just waiting to get down. And he was raking a tree. I could hear him, and then he walked across the plot about 80, 90 yards out. And so the next night, it was supposed to be like 75 degrees, and um, 
getting the pressure at home and this and that. I almost, I almost was like, yeah. And I'm like, nope, I'm going back in. I went back in and I moved from the stand I was in and I hung a saddle tree stand that day or that sat that day. And I thought he should be coming through here. At least I'll get, you know, closer eyeballs on him. Maybe I can throw a grunt at him. I didn't know exactly where he was, but I knew he was in this area. And then um, that one, right at dark, he was working down the edge of my TSI zone, which is like my back eight acres. And then my food plot was way up in the front. I had all this cover that I let grow up in between the food plot and the woods. And it was like an early successional habitat area. Um, I had a couple scrapes in there. And here he comes right down the line, that transition zone, that edge that we always hear about. And I ended up making a good shot on him. Um, he ran, I don't know, 50, 60 yards around me and then bedded down and, and, and died right there. But that was, I think, success due to the annual trail cam history. You know, it wasn't to the day, but it was pretty close. I actually did a podcast with my buddy Jim, you know, three or four days before that, saying I'm going this weekend, this is why, and the whole thing, and it happened. Uh, I was pretty happy with, with all that. I think, you know, the fact that my property has the the habitat management done to it, that buck felt comfortable coming down through there when he did. You know, it wasn't the rut yet, and it was a 210-pound deer dress. So it was a good, good nine point. Yeah, so do you think if you hadn't done some of that habitat stuff, maybe some of the uh, cover wasn't there for him that he would have been there? He probably would have been in the dark. Yeah, he would, he would have been, you know, after hours. Because wherever he was staying before that was uh, full of cover, right? Where he, wherever he was bedding was full of cover. He was either out in the swamp or he was on my neighbor's autumn olive thicket. Um, one of the two. And, yeah, then he felt comfortable to come down in daylight, which is it's what we go for. You know, if it was a wide, if I was sitting in a wide open cornfield, he would not have stepped out in daylight. Right. Or wide open woods even. Right. Good story. Okay. Wrapping it up here with Jared. Jared, just to kind of sum up some of the stuff we talked about here, and maybe you can throw in something else, but what are your top two to three suggestions for hunters to take true ownership of their land that would help their success the most? One um, would be to call somebody to help get you started if you're afraid to get started or not, not afraid, but if you don't know what to do and you just want a little reassurance on what you you're thinking is the right thing to do, call somebody. We at the Habitat podcast, we're happy to help. There's other consultants out there. Um, just for the money you spend on a property and the amount of work and money you're going to put into a property while you own it, the thousand bucks or 2000 bucks, whatever it is to get somebody out there. I mean, it's a drop in the bucket. I spent that on, apple trees over the past six years, you know? So if you're putting those in the wrong spot or you're cutting the wrong trees down, they don't grow back that quickly. So it's good to, to at least be confident yeah. in your plan. Um, so I, I would say hire a consultant. Um, if you don't, I would say do a ton of research, you know, listen to podcasts, go on YouTube and set up your access to where you are not pressuring your property. Access first. Sand locations, food plots, and all that second. So figure out how you can get around your property both before you hunt and after it gets dark um, safely without blowing 
all the deer in the neighborhood out. And then third, I guess I would say, you know, wait till that time is right. Um, go get a state land spot down the road. Go get a, a different spot with a farmer that needs some does killed to go get the itch scratch for the first part of October. Go shoot a couple deer off the bat and get honed in, get the jitters out. And then when it's time to go, you know, that late October, then you're ready. You're not dropping stuff out of your stand. You're all honed in, ready to go. Um, low pressure, time time is right. Less is more. Great. Well, thanks, Jared. Um, yeah, the, the idea, I think, is super important. Um, just to chime in there, just getting a game plan, right? And before you just start doing stuff, like you said, cutting a tree, like that's a pretty permanent, you know, change. Sure. And is. so <laughs> before you start doing stuff, really having a game plan put together and being confident in that game plan, right? Whether it be you've just gone through those things and looking at those factors that we've talked about uh, and really mapping it out. Uh, I even think uh, if I were to do this, I might suggest, hey, Maybe the first year you don't make a bunch of changes. You really see how the deer are using it and what you got here before you start making these drastic big changes, you know, that you can't undo. Um, and then getting, yeah, if you need to get some professional uh, input uh, into having the right game plan, because these things, it isn't just like, a, oh, next year and I can redo. It's This is a you know, 10, 15 plus year game plan and with goals you're shooting for, right? So, uh, to end it here, Jared, tell us a little more. We didn't in this segment just about what you're doing. You've got the Habitat podcast where guys can learn more about Habitat specifically. Like, that's what you guys talk about. And then you have a seed company. So, give us just a little bit about those two, if you would. Sure. Thanks, Adam. Um, yeah, so Habitat podcast, we, uh, we are trying to become better Habitat managers. So, we talk a lot about deer deer hunting and how to improve your property, whether you own it or lease it or whatever for better deer hunting, whatever your goals are, it could be even, you know, upland birds or, or Turkey or, or, you know, whatever. Um, that's what we talk about 230 episodes now. And, uh, we talked to everybody from guys like, like you and me up to, you know, the, the TV star hunters and everybody in between. So we're, we're trying to really, get different experiences and learn the best ways to skin the habitat and, and hunting cat. We mainly talk about whitetails. I'm not going to lie. Most of it is whitetail related. That's uh, so what we like to do. So that's the habitat podcast. You can find that, you know, any, anywhere you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, our website. Um, and then vitalize seed company. That's our seed company. We started Albert and I, he's a friend of mine out of Ohio. Um, we're trying to simplify food plots. So instead of the, you know, all the different seed types out there, we have two mixes, one for the spring, one for the fall. They're very diverse. They have 13 seeds in the spring mix and 15 seeds in the fall mix, seed types, different seeds. Um, and how that works is more of, you know, deer-like diversity. We talked about that versus a monoculture. And then, you know, if you have a certain soil type that maybe a soybean doesn't grow great in, well, there's 14 other seeds that are going to have its back right. as sort of an insurance policy. And then over time, the certain seeds we've selected and the certain ratios for each one cycle nutrients, um, both from the soil and from the air and put them into, you know, the ground at your food plot level. So nitrogen, 
fertilizer, all the micronutrients. These plants have different root lengths and structures. They pull them up from five foot below the dirt and they pull it out of the air. You know, air is like 78 or 72% nitrogen. Um, and they put it right into the ground. So there's, there's a method to this madness. It's not just the kitchen sink we're throwing at it. It's all been thought through and everything else. And that's uh, vitalizedseed.com. So cool. thanks for letting me plug. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, and, and you know, the science behind it is it's kind of complicated, but it isn't when you really boil it down. The idea of, um, you know, plants need nitrogen um, and they can't fix it out of the air. And the whole look at the nitrogen cycle, the carbon cycle, all those things to make healthy plants and healthy soil. You know, guys can look up that stuff, but that's kind of what your focus is with that. So, yep, Jared. Thanks for coming on. It was good chatting. I know we could have talked a long time about a lot of this stuff, but at least we kind of started digging into some private land stuff to help guys out. So thanks for coming on. Hey, happy to do it anytime, Adam. Great talking to you again. So as we wrap up, here are some key high IQ takeaways and challenges. Do you really know the property you hunt as well as you should? What can you do to better get to know the land? How do you actually use it? and determine what you can do to improve it and keep deer there and help you hunt it more efficiently. What are some long and short term improvements you can easily start on regarding just that? Write them down and a potential timeline and plan to do that. Okay, next time we'll continue our Private Land series with a new guest, Dr. Clint McCoy, a veterinarian, outdoor writer, and big buck slayer from Illinois country and he has some very interesting things to add to the conversation. You won't wanna miss it, and I'll see you then.